Well, as we take our Bibles and turn back to uh, either Ephesians 3 or 1 Corinthians 6, I, I think we'll go with 1 Corinthians 6, if that's okay. 1 Corinthians 6 this morning. And we, uh, I, would, I would just mention we're humbled and grateful that there are people throughout the country and even around the world that, that are tuning in every week to our live stream. Isn't that amazing? The modern technology that has allowed that to happen. And there's people that can't get out of their homes. There's people with other issues that that uh, watch us all the time. So we welcome you uh, among our body here today for those that are doing so. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and as I, as I look at that with you, I, I want to mention what I'm going to talk about today is so out of step with our culture and even often in the evangelical culture that uh, this, this is a, it seems like we're in a different world as we look at this passage of Scripture. Matter of fact, I saw on Facebook this week somebody showed me uh, a comment by someone uh, talking about uh, our church and, uh, and others. And he, he said, our church, this church over here, don't go there. It's a cult. Uh, they're a bunch of haters. Uh, they're, uh, they're homophobic. They're this, that, or the other. Don't you go there because they're a bunch of Pharisees and hypocrites over there because of the very things we're going to talk about today, the morality, the truth of living purely for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be, don't be surprised that this, what we're going to talk about today is completely out of sync with what we're seeing in the world around us. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul's been addressing the moral issues that this church is involved in, the immoralities of various kind. Uh, they were not taking sin seriously of lots of types, but especially uh, in this section, the immoral type things, immoral type of issues. They were living very differently than they were living prior to being saved, or very differently, uh, not, were not living very differently than before they were saved. And they're not living differently much from the culture around them, pretty much in lockstep with that. And Paul's going to talk about that, and he wants to see change in them. But I want to say this right up front. I want you to catch this. Morality is not his goal. Morality is not the goal of Christianity. It is not the message of Christianity. It's one of the results of following Christ. But it's not the goal of Christianity. Puritan Thomas Watson warned uh, centuries ago that morality can drown a man as fast as vice. A vessel may sink full of gold or full of dung. That's a good point. John MacArthur wrote not too awful long ago concerning this subject. He said this, A behavioral reform has no bearing on a person's relationship with God. It has no means to deliver them out of the bondage of sin into the kingdom of Christ. The best that morality can do is turn people into another batch of condemned Pharisees. Morality can't save anyone from guilt or fuel genuine godliness. Pharisees and prostitutes shall share the same hell. Neither social change nor moralism was ever the message of the Old Testament prophets. They were not the message of the Messiah or the New Testament writers. So what is the message of the New Testament, of Scripture itself? If it's not morality, it's the message of a good news, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ who has radically redeemed us and changed us and saved us from our sin and sent us forth to live for his glory. And part of that, living for his glory, is living morally in a world that is corrupted and full of sin. And so as we look at these, this passage together today, we're looking, starting back to verse 12, actually there are three changes in the lives and behaviors of these believers that, that Paul wants to see as a result of who they are in Christ. But verse 11 is pivotal. Don't, uh, don't go into verse 12 Do you look at verse 11. There's three transactions, spiritual transactions in verse 11 that are foundational for any moral change. 
And they are these. First, he says, but you were washed. That's the word re- idea of regeneration. We are new creatures in Christ. You were sanctified. You were set apart for God and for a holy purpose. And then finally, you are justified. You've been forgiven of your sins and been given the righteousness of God. And so those spiritual transactions took place at the moment of salvation. Uh, You were regenerated. You were justified and you were sanctified. And on the basis of all that, of all those spiritual transactions, there should be a change in the way we live and serve Christ. And so that's what he's talking about now. And we're looking at those changes that uh, in the moral realm that he's talking about. And we saw last week two of those. First of all, new principles. And then a new master. And now today we're looking at a new relationship that is ours because of our union with Christ. Now here's the thing. The relationship is this. You and I, if we're Christians, are united with Christ. We're one with Christ. We're in union with Christ. And that changes everything. And until you understand that, until you grasp that unity in Christ, nothing else matters. You you may change your moral status. You may quit certain sins. You may do better stuff uh, going to church more often or whatever. But none of that matters until you understand that you're in union with Jesus Christ. And out of that union with Christ is how we live our lives. And we're going to look at that then. That the, these people here are having a hard time understanding things. It, 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 notice six times in this chapter, he says, do you not know? The problem is, although they should have known, they didn't grasp certain things. We've looked at three already. The fourth one is found in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Because they did not grasp those things. I'm not talking intellectually. I'm talking about with their full being because they did not know those things in that way, their lives were not being changed. And so he takes them back to what they should have known in all this passage of Scripture. Now because of verse 11 and the spiritual transactions that took place at the moment of conversion... He now says, look, there should be some changes in your life morally. That's his context here. Other changes as well, but the context is morally. And he says here there's there's four that he wants to identify in our text. So let's take a look at them together. First of all, that as Christians, our bodies are members of Christ. That our bodies are members of Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, may it never be. Uh, He wants us to know then that our bodies are considered one with him, in union with him. We are, uh, they are members of Christ. We are members of Christ, our bodies are. And therefore it's unthinkable to use these bodies in an unrighteous way, in an an immoral way. It's inconceivable to do so. It's like taking a, a brand new silk sheet off your bed and going out and using it for a grease rag. Nobody would do that. It's inconceivable. And so the idea that we would take a, a body that is a member of Christ and use it for immoral purposes is simply inconceivable. So he says, may it never be. Secondly, the sexual relationships involve a bodily union. Verse 16, he says this, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? 
for he says the two shall become one flesh. Now, I want to say this about the prostitute situation. This was a circumstance going on in Corinth where people, as we saw last time, uh, were going down to the temple pro temples to invo be involved with the temple prostitutes and they didn't see a problem with it. We can broaden that for sure to full, all full immoral situations in which someone is involved with someone who is not their own spouse. And so don't just localize that there. This is a circumstance that he's facing. But he's saying then that, that we are one flesh in him. He goes back here now to Genesis 2. So remember when God gave Eve to Adam and they became husband and wife, the Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says that they would become one flesh. The sexual act within a marriage, a matter of fact, the sexual act's period is an involvement of one flesh. That's what he's saying here. The one flesh is the idea that is that physical act that bonds people together. It bonds them physically, it bonds them emotionally, it bonds them spiritually. It's not simply a biological act. It's a bonding. And that's part of the design of the physical act in marriage. And so he says when you do that, when you, when you take your body and use it in immoral ways, you're becoming one flesh with someone who is not your spouse, and therefore you completely dis denigrate the design for which God has given it. And that's why he goes back to that passage. Thirdly, it's even more serious now in verse 17. They do not know that the Christian is one with the Lord. Now he's layering his, his theology. He's now all the way down to verse 17. We are one with the Lord. He says this, but one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now get the picture. All that he's saying here, all three of these things we've looked at so far, traces, traces us back to verse 15 when he says, may it never be. None of this should ever be. The King James translates that, that little phrase, God forbid, and the word God is not even in the text. But the reason the translators of the King James did that is because this is the strongest possible statement that Paul could make for saying something should never be. And so they threw in that section to help us, uh, I guess, realize how powerful this statement is. This stuff should never be. God forbid that any of this take place in the life of the Christian. Immorality should not be part and parcel of our lives. And so he says here, look, that, uh, that we are one with Christ. And therefore, it's not merely sin when we do these things, that we are actually taking the members of Christ and involving Christ in an immoral situation. And that should never be. That should be a God forbid. Uh, until very recently, you know, this is very counter. Uh, the, the, okay, let's go this way. The Corinthians are count, would counter that, wouldn't they? We've seen that so far. How would they counter Paul's argument? They would say, well, you know, this is our culture. Uh, we've been doing this since uh, for, for decades, maybe centuries. Going down to the temples, being involved with the prostitutes. That's just part of our culture. And because of the, the philosophy of the Stoics that we saw last time, the body and the inward person are two different things. And therefore the body were, were throwaways. It didn't matter what you did with your body. That was Greek culture. It didn't matter what you did with your body. All that mattered is who you were on the inside. And until very recently, we had no parallel in our culture with that. 
I, I really couldn't illustrate it very well uh, years ago when I preached through this passage. But now we can. As I mentioned last week, the, the personhood theory that has become popular that says this, your body and your inward person are not the same thing. And that's exactly what the Stoics were saying. Uh, you can be biologically, for example, in gender, biologically you can be a male, but you feel like or think you're a female, and that is what you really are. What you think you are, what you feel like you are, is who you really are. Biology it doesn't matter. Who you are biologically doesn't matter at all. That's personhood theory. And that's what we're, we're seeing today. So that's gender issues, abortion, uh, euthanasia, all these things. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. What matters is what's going on inside. And so some Christians today, and if you cruise the internet, whatever, you'll see this. There are Christians living in, in first class, outward, immoral situations who claim to love Christ, who claim to be spiritual, who claim to be followers of the Lord, yet they're living in this way. They justified in this, in this manner. It's not who I really am on the inside. I'm just using my body in a different way. It doesn't matter how I use my body. That is not, folks, Christianity. There's nowhere in the scriptures that teach that. As a matter of fact, Christianity is a, is a religion that involves the body. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transferred by the renewing of your mind. And then it goes on to say how we are to use our bodies for the glory of God. Our bodies matter. And we're one. The scriptures do not separate out the interior and the exterior in that way. We are one. And he's saying here that in verse 17, we are also one spirit with Christ. You cannot simply take out the body and say it's okay. Now what I want to do here, I want to mention a couple of practical things. I want you to note something. As Paul is talking about the fact that we should live pure lives and not be involved in immorality, as he does that, he does not use the arguments that we might often use, even though they might be helpful. He doesn't say, you know, what would happen if you get pregnant? That would ruin your life. That, that would change the trajectory of your life forever. What would happen if you got pregnant? He doesn't talk about that. What would happen if you get an STD? And you get a disease that could wreck your health or maybe take your life. You shouldn't be involved in those kind of sins because of what it might do to you uh, physically. He doesn't use that argument. He doesn't even use the argument that it's morally wrong. You shouldn't do this because it's simply wrong. His argument is much more profound. And as Christians, we need to understand what that argument is. He is saying you are, as a Christian, united with Christ. And it's because you're united with Christ everywhere you go. And everything you do, and every behavior that you have, and every thought you have, Christ is with you. You don't leave him over here in the corner to go off and sin somewhere, go back and pick him back up. He's with you at all times. That is the fundamental teaching he's saying here. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing those other things. Certainly, pregnancy out of wedlock can be a horribly difficult thing, STDs, morality. These are all things that we could argue, but the fundamental issue is this. Christ is in you. You, you are a member with Christ. How dare you? God forbid that you take a member of Christ and involve him in immorality. Far more fundamental. Here's the fourth one, verse 18. 
They do not know that we, that we sin against our own bodies when we behave immorally. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. How can we do such a thing, he says, you sin even against your own body. And we've looked at most of the issues here, so I want to back up. This is a profoundly deep spiritual discussion on why we should live godly in the areas of morals. And then he backs off here and gets extremely practical. On on the basis of all this profound truth, he says very clearly and very simply, flee immorality. That's very practical. Doesn't take a lot of theological understanding. It's simply the case. Flee immorality. The word flee is uh, in the present tense. It means continually to flee. Keep on fleeing. Uh, Don't let it catch up with you. It should be a constant thing. Flee. There are some temptations we simply need to run from. There are some temptations that if you stay toe-to-toe with that temptation for uh, continuously, you will fall. And you need to flee. Lighting, light, lightening up a little bit here, you might remember the old story of the toad and the frog. It's a lot lighter, isn't it? Remember, if you remember that story, toad went out and baked the best chocolate chip cookies ever made. He liked them so much, he took them over to frog to enjoy them together. And they were pounding down the chocolate chip cookies, eating them hand and fist, you know, or whatever you got, what frogs have. And, uh, and finally, frog said, you know, we're going to get sick. We're eating all these cookies. We're going to get sick. So we've got to do something about it. We can't stop eating. We don't have the willpower to stop eating. And so they decided to put them in a box. But then they said, oh, we could open the box. So then they tied a string around it and said, oop, we could untie the string. Let's put them on top of something. Oops, we could get a ladder and go up and get them. And so finally, Frog said, I've got an idea. And he took out the box into the yard, opened it up, and let the birds come and eat all the cookies. They were gone. They fled. But that made Toad mad. He said, I'm going home to bake a cake. And Frog said, I'll come with you. Yeah. Continuously fleeing would be the idea. I want you to go down over to Proverbs with me. Go back to Proverbs chapter 7. I love this passage that fits so well with what we're looking at. Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon is writing to his son and he talks about the dangers of immorality and and how easy it is to fall into this trap. And he says, so here's his story, starting with verse 7. We'll read a portion. 7, 6. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youth a man lacking sense. A young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near his corner and he takes the way to her house. In the, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. He doesn't think anybody sees him. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart, and she's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home, and she, she is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner, and she seizes him and kisses him. And the story goes on. But the end result comes down in verse 21. With, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
Here's a young man just traveling along. He, he's he's going to get close to the temptation. He's going to go in the darkness, and he's going to get near the corner where he knows such a woman lives. And when she comes out, she snags him, and he falls like an ox to the slaughter. He does not know it will cost him his life. Back up to chapter 5, where he talks about this as well. Look at just a couple verses here, verse 7 and 8. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Verse 7 and 8 is basically saying, flee immorality. Don't go near the door of her house. Because if you go near the door of her house, you may fall. Instead, use the physical act that the Lord gives you for the way it was meant to be used in marriage. Let's go back to our passage. And let me ask a few practical questions. What temptations do you have that you really don't control very well? Or your willpower lets down? What is your besetting sense? It may not be immorality. It might be something else totally. It's time. Maybe it's time to run. Paul and all this deep theology say sometimes it's just best to run, to flee. Sometimes people think, seem to think if I just can't stand in the midst of temptation and defeat it, then there's something wrong with me. And let me suggest to you that's pride. It's not spiritual wisdom. I remember several years ago a, a church leader, a Christian leader was preaching for the pulpit here. And he said uh, he traveled a lot in his ministry, traveled all over. And he said he is so concerned about the temptation that's on the television in the hotel rooms that he has the, the, the uh, hotel come and take the television out of the room, of every room he goes to. And I respected the fact that he did that. A couple of the ladies in our church, however, was complaining to me that this man apparently isn't very spiritual or he could stand against temptation. They're naive. Paul says, flee. Sometimes it's best to flee. This man realized that there was, there was an issue. Here's something you, I hope you've learned. Have you learned this? God can be trusted. You can't. That's, that's profound right there, right? Have you learned that yet? Have you learned that you will let yourself down? Have you learned that you will, if you put yourself in temptation long enough, that you will fall? Have you learned that you are not Jesus Christ and you will fail? If you do that, you cannot be trusted. Christ can, but he tells you sometimes it's best to flee. Get out of there. Don't stand toe-to-toe with these things or you could fall. That would mean, let me get real practical here. I don't know your circumstance. Hopefully I'll hit all of you somewhere here. That, that means that you don't sit in a parked car or in a house by yourself with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't do that. Don't, don't, go set it, don't, don't go invite your girlfriend over to your house for an for a, a evening meal and sit there on the couch and watch TV. You know what's going to happen? You do that enough, you will fall. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how much you love Christ. Ultimately, you will fall. If, have you learned? I mean, another application. Don't spend time with somebody else's spouse alone, especially if you're attracted to them. How many people have fallen into adultery with their best friends? 
you should have learned or should be learning that uh, to stay away from certain places that tempt you, whatever that might be, things that might tempt you to revert back to what you were, or, or, or temptation to be involved in sins that you once were involved in. If, for example, at one time you were involved in alcohol or drugs, don't go to places where there's alcohol and drugs being served and available. You will fall. You will fall. Have you learned maybe perhaps in some cases that you need to move your computer out of the bedroom into the living room so that people can see what you're watching? Or, or maybe it's, it might be a good idea for you to cancel some internet services and some live streams because you cannot handle that. I could go on and on, but I think you're getting the point. If you've got a sin in your life that, that wants to master you, you, may, you, if at all possible, you flee that issue. If you stand toe-to-toe forever, you probably will fall. So that's what Paul tells them to do here. Now this union with Christ will cause us to change our view about ourselves and our sin. Go to verse 19. It should also change our view about our bodies. Our bodies. He says, verse 19, Do you not know that your temple is a, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? Seven times in this, uh, in, from verses 12 to 20, Paul mentioned the body. What do you think he's talking about? The body. And he says our bodies here in this wonderful scripture, he says our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. There's two characteristics of a temple that we need to know. First of all, it's a sacred dwelling place of God. That's what a sanctuary is, a sacred dwelling place of God. This is the third, do you not know? He didn't seem to understand that. If our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, then they shouldn't be used with, uh, in regard to impurity and profanity. Our bodies is where the Holy Spirit dwells. God lives in us. How dare we use it for impurity? A lot of times in recent times, we've, we've turned back to 9-11. We said, remember 9-11. It's kind of a rallying cry, right? I think the Jews might have said, remember Antiochus Epiphanes. Because back in uh, 175 B.C., that was the time Antiochus Epiphanes took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar of the temple of, the, of, of God and desecrated the temple of God. And perhaps that's in the mind of Paul when he talks about our body as a temple. We don't desecrate it. Remember also verse 16 of chapter 3, you might jot that down. He says here, there the local church is the temple of God. And now in 619, he says the individual Christian is the temple of God. This is not a contradiction. This is, a, this is both. Last night before I went home, I came over here. All the lights were off and everybody was gone. I sat right over here and I looked around and I considered this thought. I carry God around in me. I am a temple of God. And tomorrow morning, there will be hundreds of people flood this auditorium who are going to be part of the temple of God. We're all going to be bringing God with us in a sense. We're going to unite together as a local church as the temple of God because we are individually the temple of God. But not only is the church the temple of God and sacred, it also, it says here, belongs to God. That's the second thing, we sh- uh, characteristic. It says, 
who, who is in you, the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God and you're not your own. A temple doesn't belong to anybody. A temple is the house of God. The temple belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you and I. We may take care of it, but we don't, it doesn't belong to us. So let's say, for example, a silly illustration. Let's say I borrow your car this afternoon. I take it home, and while, while I've got it, I repaint it. I, I, I use graffiti on it or whatever. Make it beautiful. You know, make it beautiful purple. Cool. And, and I take your car, and I do that, and, and then I, I put a snow blade on the front. And then I jack it up six feet, and I bring it back tonight to the church picnic. Remember in the bulletin it says, bring something to the picnic. Okay, that's, way, that's a good advertisement. I'm, I'm squeezing that in there. Bring some chips and dessert tonight, all right? But not that car. That car doesn't belong to me. I have no right to take that car, your car, and do that to it because it doesn't belong to me, right? So I have no right with my own body to do whatever I want. It doesn't belong to me. I belong to Christ. I'm the temple of God. I belong, it belongs to Christ. I'm not my own. And then finally, because of our union with Christ, it will change our view of our lives. It will change our view of our lives in general. Look at verse 20. He says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The word bought is straight out of the slave market of that time. When a slave was purchased, he or she now became the property of a master. It was not the property of the individual. The slave was not free. That slave belonged to a master. They were no longer free to do whatever they wanted to do. They belonged to another. And that's what he's using here, saying here, you've been bought, you've been redeemed with a price. What is that price? What is that price? I want you to go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It's one powerful little verse that I think you ought to look at with me. Revelation 5, 9. We have perhaps the greatest worship service in all the scriptures recorded in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 9. We have people singing, we have the angels singing to the Lord, and here's what they're singing. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What did it cost Jesus Christ to buy you? to redeem you, to purchase you, the precious blood of himself. You are not cheap. You didn't come cheap. The purchase price was the blood of the Holy Son of God. And so when we go back to our passage of scripture and look at that, you have been purchased by the holy blood of the Son of God. As a result of that, no one else has rights to you except God himself. But now he gives us the great application. Because of that, therefore glorify God in your body. We talk about glorifying God all the time here. But notice how what a powerful statement, glorify God in your body. And he doesn't say glorify God with your body. He says glorify God in your body. So it's the whole, everything we are doing. We're doing in our bodies to the glory of Christ. That's Paul's argument. That's his takeaway for us. We're living in a culture where sexual standards are becoming increasingly corrupt. 
We're in moral freefall. You notice that? <laughs> uh, we're in a moral freefall. Uh, what was uh, un- inconceivable 20 years ago is common today. And we as Christians stand out in that, in that moral cesspool in ways that the world does not like and in ways that you and I can often be tempted not to do because we're so out of step with the world. This passage of Scripture is totally out of step with all that the world is teaching today for the most part concerning morals. Totally out of step. And yet God has called us to live this kind of life for Him. A lot of literature picks up on this theme. If you read uh, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, you pick up a lot of these moral type themes. Uh, the, The Lord of the Rings does that as well. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a pivotal point where the, uh, the, the main elf there is talking to the main uh, uh, human, Aragorn, and he says to him, uh, th- there's a great battle between good and evil going on, and you need to lead the battle against evil. Aragorn said, I can't do that. I don't have any power to do that. I'm just a man. I'm just a ranger, what he was, and I can't do that. The elf hands him a sword that is a sword that is the uniting sword of all good forces. With that sword... Aragon, if he would take it and use it, would now become the king over all the forces of good. He says to him, now here's this sword. Will you now become the man that you were born to be? That's the same basic theme here. That man didn't change outwardly, but there was a vast change. Because now he, was, he sees who he was born to be. Paul's argument in regards to immorality is not simply straighten up the ship. Paul's argument with immorality is this. Live the life that God saved you to live. Live for the glory of God, not for the purposes and the draws of the sinful self. When we get that as our foundation then the other things flow from it. But the foundation is there's a fundamental change in who we are as Christians. And we must understand that. We must believe it. Paul says you must know it. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for your word. This wonderful study of scripture here today, Lord, that just is so out of step with everything we're seeing in the world around us today. And Lord, uh, it's hard for us sometimes to to recognize how different we must be to glorify you. And yet that's what you called us to be. But Lord, more importantly, may we we recognize who we are in Christ. And that we've been purchased by your precious blood. And that that we are, are your people. We're members with you. We're united with you. And Lord, may this fundamentally change everything we are and everything we do. For it should. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.